Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am here to help you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. As the name says, our listeners are business creators. We have our entrepreneurs, small business owners, local business owners. We have marketing and business coaches, consultants, and mentors. We have those who help others create their businesses. And we have the do-it-yourselfers like to have your own hands on the levers. If you are one or more of the above, in fact, many of our listeners who tune in every week are all of the above, please take a moment, explore episodes, discover how we serve you at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. Also, check us out on networks such as iTunes. Be sure to subscribe. You'll get fresh content every single week. You'll get immediate access to over 260 topics covering a breadth and depth of material relevant to business creators just like you. And every five-star rating helps us serve more business creators just like you. So diving in, we have a unique opportunity today to explore something called leadership archaeology. This is a very interesting concept, and we're going to have some fun with this. And it has to do with leadership transitions, building your leadership team, how we incorporate emotional intelligence. So we're going to cover a lot of different elements of leadership in today's episode, where we will be joined by leadership archaeologist, Krister Ungerbach. And let me just tell you a little bit about Krister. He's a passionate, energizing, and dynamic keynote speaker and CEO coach. He's a former award-winning CEO of a global hyper-growth company, and he's done business in 40 companies, built businesses in six, and lived in three. As the world's first leadership archaeologist, we've had leadership for so long, now we're digging at it. Krister is a taste tester of once-in-a-lifetime leadership experiences. He's a perspective-changing explorer who ventures beyond the edge of the comfort zone of most leaders and brings back tales of what he's learned. His experiments with unique, sometimes outlandish approaches to building leadership skills, oh, I like this guy already, in order to save leaders the time, the money, and possibly embarrassment of experimenting on themselves, has been very helpful to companies around the world. A global employee engagement expert and winner of five consecutive top workplace awards, Krister is now turning his attention to helping leaders unearth unseen potential in their organizations, their teams, and themselves. Sort of like bringing those groundhogs out of the burrows like we do here. His upcoming book, which I can't wait to get a copy of, is called The Leadership Archaeologist, Ten Tools to Unearth Unseen Potential. So let's get started. Krister, come on in. The weather's fine. All right. Be good. Uh, I'm glad the weather is good there, Adam. It's good here in St. Louis as well. So I thank Great. you very much for the invitation to, to speak with the, your audience, the business creators. Oh, we're going to have a ton of fun here. So before we dive into your story and share some adventures in leadership, I understand that some of our listeners right now have a separate browser tab open and they're Googling things or binging things or Yahooing things like leadership archaeologist, Krister yeah. Ungerbach. And what I want to do is I want to help them along. Let's take a step back and go into your story a little bit. Just tell us a little bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today serving business creators from the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Yeah, so uh, as, as you mentioned, I was an award-winning CEO, and however, my most profound leadership lessons did not come while I was an award-winning CEO of a global software company. They actually came 
uh, after that, when I found myself um, sitting at the YMCA signing up for a gym membership. And what I learned at that moment, um, I'll come back to that story in a bit, but the, what I found is I was really young when I read my first business book when I was 12 years old, and I probably had read more business books by the time I was had graduated from college than many people even read in a lifetime. And I had a moment in my early 40s uh, after, um, you know, growing, um, le- reading all these business books clearly worked because we managed to grow a company from a handful of employees to hundreds of employees in eight different countries and be the market leader right. in our field. Um, but what I realized in my early 40s after you know, 20, 25 years of doing this is that I had learned everything about business leadership, but I hadn't learned anything about inspiring followership. And I had, a, uh-huh. a, let's say, a come-to-Jesus moment or you know, a breaking point where I ended up going through, actually, I, I kind of say two simultaneous divorces. One was a divorce with my shareholders and then also a divorce with my spouse, wife at the time. Uh, right. And I started asking myself, like, what – what, what am I doing wrong? And I was, in many cases, applying all these techniques of leadership and communication that I've been doing with my employees, and and I started to see, well, clearly I'm missing something. Uh, and so I went on this journey, uh, which is where the, my journey as a leadership archaeologist began, is looking outside of the pages of Inc. Magazine and Harvard Business Review to all the stuff that I'd clearly been missing. And where I found was the most insightful things that I learned I didn't find in business books or in the typical business press. I found them in the research of relational psychologists in books written in the, some cases the 60s and 70s by race riot negotiators uh, in uh, pro, post-traumatic stress disorder research. So what I do is take the things that I learn from outside of the traditional business world uh, combine them with what I have learned in the business world to kind of draw really concrete tools, leadership tools for leaders of small and medium-sized businesses. Right. Wow, that's that's very interesting. So tell us a little bit more about the gym membership. I thought I missed something there. So, so yeah, so I was sitting at the YMCA, and this young woman in her 20s is filling out my gym application, and she uh, she you know, asks, you know, what's your name? Krister, K-R-I-S-T-E-R, Ungerbach, on and on. And she gets to this, the next question, and I broke down crying. And the question was, who is your emergency contact? So here I was, the CEO of a multi-million dollar, $30 million company, and uh, I didn't have an emergency contact because my shareholders, my family, the people who had been around me uh, for so long and was in the midst of a divorce there. And then two weeks later, my wife walked out on me. And so I was literally alone, and I said, what clearly have I been doing wrong all these years? Um, and uh, and that's what started the journey to, to kind of develop emotional intelligence to find the really the communication skills that maybe while I was successful as a CEO and growing this company, there was just this last 20% that I was missing. Uh, that was the difference between wow. growing a great business over the course of 20 years and growing a great business over the course of a lifetime. Wow. that See, that's striking me. So as you say, one of the catalysts was they asked who your emergency contact was, and you didn't have an answer for that because 
if I'm reading this correctly, there was nobody to you close enough to serve as an emergency contact. That is true, yes. Wow. Whoa. <laughs> Sometimes we have things that are revelational, but that is really something because it got me thinking about it. And, I mean, I have emergency contacts, but then I immediately thought to myself, who's my emergency contact behind my emergency contact and so on and so forth. <laughs> And yeah, and when you get four or five deep. Uh, and I'm starting yeah. to think about some other people I know around me. And based on my knowledge of them, and I think I know them pretty good, how would they answer that question? And realizing two things. Number one, they might only have one emergency contact themselves. Or number two, these folks I may think are my fairly close friends. I don't know who they would turn to in an emergency, which means if I was involved in an emergency, including that person, who would we call? How well do I know yeah. them? Well, and I think the other side is as we, what I found is, you know, we all have family and hopefully spouses or children or something. We all have people close to us, uh, but it's what my primary lesson was is how is it that I am unconsciously, uh, like I was unaware of many of the, the ways that I was communicating with people that were um, slowly destroying those relationships. Um, and then I just happened to have a break in uh, essentially all of them at once uh, because of the the way the story of my life just played out. And that's what kind of set me out to say, I need to find something different, you know, like a different perspective on listening and how we ask leaders, ask questions as leaders, how we inspire people. And that's where I talk about the difference between leading a business and inspiring followership. What got us to $30 million company um, was that we had an inspiring vision. When I was 19 years old on my 19th birthday, I said, I said my goal is I want to build a billion-dollar company in my life. And when I was set out to recruit and get people to join my team, I was that big thinker who said, hey, we're going to build a billion-dollar company together. And at some point, the people who are on my shareholders, uh, they, they had got to a point where they had enough financial wealth, and it wasn't really about following a big picture of, you know, I can be a hundred billionaire or whatever. It was, do I want to follow this person? So we can inspire uh -huh. people to follow our vision, or we can inspire people to follow us. And ideally, the best businesses, if we want to get the most out of the people who work with us or work for us, whether they're freelancers or employees, if we want to get the most out of the people that work for us, then we want them to not only be inspired to follow our vision, but also inspired to follow us as people, as leaders. Wow. I mean, you really are opening my eyes here and we probably have to step up the pace just ever so slightly. We're only 11 minutes into this, so we still have a lot of time. But I know that you requested during our green room conversation that I ask you a series of questions, and I love the areas we're going to cover, and I want to make sure we get to all of them. So for those in the Excellent. audience, make sure you have out your pad of paper and two pens. And the reason I say two pens is you might be in the middle of an aha moment that you're writing down, and one of your pens breaks. Or if you're like me and you have your cats running around your office, Princess Alessandra here is staring at one of my pens right now. And she has been known to take the pen right in her mouth, right in front of me, and run off with it before I can stop her. 
She is one clever little <laughs> kitty. So it just depends on your situation. I always say a pad of paper and two pens. So you can take that home with you and in your own work with your own coaching clients and your own consulting clients and the work you do mentoring people, advise them to do the same thing. Uh, I'd love if you gave me credit for it, but you don't have to, although I really would love if you did so. Uh, let's define our terms here real quickly, Krista. What do we mean by leadership archaeologist? So leadership archaeology is really about, one, digging outside of um, traditional business press. I go and look for experiential ways to learn. What I found is learning better questioning skills and leadership skills on a personal level is not something that can learn from books. It's something yeah, either I use coaches myself uh, or I go right. to often two, three-day workshops where I immerse myself in experiences. Some of these are things that you know, I have to sign non-disclosure agreements and uh, that if you were to Google the names of these organizations, you, like me, 10 years ago, would say, wow, that seems a little bit out there. And so what I do is go with a non-judgmental mind, uh, which I, I can't say I would have been able to do 10 years ago, and I, I look and see, like, what are the nuggets of wisdom to be found here? Uh, by the same token, I look in many of the insights that I find come from books that were, you know, written 20, 30 years ago, but maybe weren't marketed effectively. Um, so really kind of looking in um, unique places to find unique insights. Yeah, that's okay. That That's kind of what I figured, but I appreciate that more detailed explanation. So let's start with something that we're starting to see more and more of in today's business climate, especially when we have startups that are turning into billion-dollar companies and multi-billion-dollar companies that end up transforming the marketplace in which they serve and in some places our culture. So they grow very quickly, but then something happens. They outgrow their leaders. So why, in your estimation, do these companies tend to outgrow their leaders, and what do we do about it? So I think the biggest thing, this comes from one of those nuggets of a book that I discovered, that this actually was by a Harvard professor, but it was not marketed to small growing businesses. It was primarily marketed to large Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 companies called The Leadership Pipeline by a man named Ram Charat. And he right. created a framework for when I read it, whatever, in uh, 20 years, 15 years ago or whatever it may be, um, it was a really clear framework for why companies outgrow leaders. Um, and so small, so there are six major leadership transitions that leaders go through. Very quickly there, I go from an individual contributor to a player coach. So I'm maybe managing five people. Then I go from, say, five to 30 people. I'm a full-time manager. And the most difficult transition is to become a leader of leaders. So now growing to 30 to 100 people that in my company or group. And then there are other ones like a functional leader, like becoming a vice president of finance or a vice president of sales. And the last one is kind of becoming a CEO, which is a different skill set. Uh, being a CEO of a 100-person company is a different skill set than being a CEO of a five-person company. But what was tucked in here was a clear framework that in growing companies, typically leaders have to go through multiple transitions at the same time. Um, and... What, what I did, uh, what I did using some of the research that I found in my own personal experience is I built a leadership assessment, the free leadership assessment on my website that people can take to self-identify what are the behaviors of, that make an effective player coach leader, what are the behaviors that make a, an effective full-time manager versus for each of these things. So the answer to your question is why do companies outgrow leaders is because I think we have this just 
concept of leadership, but it's not really broken down to the specific stages of leadership and what is the critical success factor at each stage. And so I myself was a leader of a company that grew from 15 to 250 employees over the time that I was there. And I personally had to go through some of these transitions. And this book gave me a bit of a framework for pinpointing what are the skills that I need to develop as the company grows. You know, when I first saw that question, when you first presented that question to me, what immediately jumped into my head is what we've seen over the past couple of years. And I'll use Uber as an example of a company like this. It started under one set of leadership. And under that first set of leadership, it was able to take on an entrenched mentality of how people get around town and go up against some very powerful interests behind taxi cab and shuttle service type companies. Once Uber got to a certain point, though, you saw how some of that, I, I don't want to say that necessarily it was all good, but some of the same traits that allowed the leadership of that company to be driven and necessarily iconoclastic to establish its place in the marketplace now became liabilities. So this, yeah. to me, really left out of me as one of the most extreme cases of a company outgrowing its leadership. And I think they did the right thing by changing leadership. And a year ago, I, I saw these articles that people were saying, uh, you know, I, I, our company will no longer reimburse Uber rides because we stand against blah, 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 blah. And then two <laughs> minutes later, two minutes later, Uber does the right thing, and they bring in a new set of leadership that is in a position to move the company on the path it's now on. So it's gone beyond the – uh, rough-and-tumble revolutionary busting into a marketplace that was gunning for it and is now in the situation where it's become part of the mainstream. So now you need a different set of leadership. So do you have any other yeah. thoughts on that beyond what I just said? Well, so I think that the other part, so Uber is a clear example, but I think there's another element with Uber that is another key part of inspiring followership, which is awareness as a leader, especially in owner-led companies, and I was in an owner-led company as well, you know, we can't be fired for the most part. So uh, right. it's critical that we have awareness. And awareness for a leader is, I believe, is three things. Self-awareness, which I think most leaders would say, I thought I was very self-aware. I know my strengths. I know my weaknesses. Sometimes we get them wrong. But that's the easiest and least important part of awareness. The second one, which I think that the Uber CEO, Travis Kalanick, was uh, failing at is, is other awareness, how our behaviors right. and words are perceived by others. And the last, which I think Kalanick, just from the little bit I know about his history, is what I call pattern awareness. So pattern awareness is actually recognizing some of the destructive patterns that have either been uh, from how our parents led us as young people or how our first leaders, there's some research that our first boss, we often unconsciously adopt many of the leadership behaviors of our first, you know, first or second boss in our career. And so <laughs> you know, I think that, yeah, so there's a whole, there's a whole separate layer there of understanding. And, and I, I speak from personal experience here because I went through um, a, a 360, an anonymous 360 survey about 10 to 15 years ago. And I went in, I thought I was going to get my results, and then I was going to say, oh, he's a great boss. You know, clearly, we had already done some pretty phenomenal growth. And I opened up the results, and they were terrible. Like one of the things that my, one of my employees said about me, and there was a strength of mine, said, he's young. 
you know, I was like in my early 30s. I was like, oh, no, what am I going to do? You know, I'm going to grow out of this strength pretty quickly, so I need to do something. So this was the moment that I learned that I was actually you know, maybe not a toxic boss, but I was a bad boss. And so I had to really shift my own style. And so this, I think, is part of the the seeds of destruction, you know, at the CEO and founder of Uber was just not knowing uh, how some of his own actions were perceived by others and kind of being in a bubble. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's very much the case. And there were some personality issues with him as well. So I'm not in any way defending what's come out about him. I just think that Uber did the right thing. And when I say that some of the energy he brought was good for Uber at the very beginning, you think about it. He is somebody who um, is iconoclastic, and perhaps his lack of awareness of things outside of his own bubble were, in some ways, that could have been good because it enabled him to push through barriers that other people might have shied from. And because he was able to push through those barriers, he fundamentally changed how we get around town. And he created opportunities for so many people who can build businesses around being a an on-call driver. Uh, it just changed, in my opinion, the entire economy. But that being said, that could only go so far. And when it got to the point where the company outgrew him, it was like he crashed into a brick wall and he was made of glass. Yeah. And I think I, for your for your listeners, I think this awareness point is especially critical for entrepreneurs and kind of business owners. Like, we don't have to do a 360 survey and you can still be visionary and be aware of how our actions um, impact others, right? So, right. I, I, and sometimes it's as simple as just setting a tone of how you ask people for feedback. Uh, you know, if I'm the boss and I only have three or four employees or I have some freelancers working for, if I ask somebody, uh, do you enjoy working with me? The likelihood that they're going to say, any, I mean, there's only one right answer to that. Yes, of course, boss. But the way we ask questions uh, if we ask the same question, say, on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, 10 being I'm the best person to work with on the face of the planet you've ever worked with in your entire life, and 1 being like, I was the worst, now I can start to actually get an honest answer. Right? Somebody says 7, they really mean 5. Right? So, right. But then what happens is psychologically, I know that you're about tools, so I want to give the listeners a specific tool about how to ask questions differently, is when oh, I, I ask like a when I ask a question on a scale of one to ten, what happens is, you know, if you ask me, do I do I enjoy this podcast on a scale of one to ten, I start unconsciously, and it happens in a split second. Ten, well, uh, yes, no, maybe. You know, nine, yes, no, maybe. And, and I actually know the reasons right. why I'm not a nine or an eight or a seven or whatever. So the follow-up question, once whatever what someone says, whether they say five or seven, say, well, what's the difference between a seven and a nine for you? And that's where the really wow deep conversations happen so that we can build awareness of what can we as leaders do. Or uh, another question that can be very powerful for an entrepreneur or business creator is to say, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much am I, you know, 10 being I completely am doing nothing and I'm doing everything that maximizes your success, and 1 being I'm kind of in the way. And then the follow-up question is what could I start or stop doing so that I'm enabling and maximizing your success working for me as a freelancer or an employee or whatever it may be. Yeah. So again, building that other awareness of all the things that other people around us know about us that we don't know. 
yeah, here's what's jumping into my mind here. I cannot remember the citation for this, but I did read this in a book that I borrowed from somebody. I just wish I could remember the title of it right now. They did a, a survey and a study of folks who worked in the in the executive office, the White House, during the presidency of Ronald Reagan and and of his successor, George H.W. Bush. And the mm-hmm. question they were trying to determine is, who did people like working for better? Now, let me tell you some things on the surface. Uh, the impression of Ronald Reagan is probably not too far removed from what a lot of people think of him. He was the, kind of a genial gentleman who you know, kind of walked around and nodded at you friendly. Maybe he didn't know your name or whatever, but yeah, he was a sense that you know, he was a fairly nice but sort of an aloof sort of guy to be around, which is the general consensus of what a lot of people who knew him personally say was mm-hmm. among his dominant personality traits. Fair enough. Now you have George H.W. Bush, who uh, was known to stop by your desk and start up a conversation with you, to know the names of your kids. And then every so often people would find out that without even telling them, he would call their parents, he'd call their spouse and say, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I really appreciate what Christer does here in the, the, in the budget office, and we really couldn't do it without him. So I just wanted to place a call as President of the United States to let you know that his work here is appreciated and you have every reason to be proud of him. So between those two leaders, who do you think that they preferred to work for? Mm, I would think that they probably preferred to work for Bush. That's because I didn't reveal the next layer. The next okay, layer right. is when you look at you look at their governance styles. If you were in the Reagan administration, you knew that that administration had some very specific goals. We were lowering taxes. We were reducing the size of government. We were going to beat the commies. We were going to make America the strongest military nation in the world. And a couple other points. You knew exactly what that administration was aiming to accomplish. So anytime you were doing any work, you had to make sure that you could explain how the work you were doing was serving one or more of those ends. Otherwise, it was going to be. Otherwise, you'd be on the short end of one of those conversations in the elevators at Apple when Steve Jobs asked you, "What have you done for Apple lately?" So you had to be yeah. very clear. Like if Ronald Reagan came up to your desk and said, "Well, Christer, what are you doing?" You would have to tell him how what you're doing is lowering taxes, reducing the size of government, beating the commies, building up the military. Now, with George H. W. Bush, he had these thousand points of light. Well, what's that mean? So, actually, when it came to work styles, many of these folks preferred working with Reagan because there was a clear mission on what they were supposed to be doing and what constituted success. And I think you're, you're actually illustrating that. That example illustrates perfectly the, my initial point was it's the difference between Reagan was people were inspired to follow the vision – Right. And it sounds from this study that people Bush may have had a more inspirational style to follow him as a person, right? And so right. both, if you want to maximize your success as a leader, both are really powerful. And and I want to be clear, like we did a we built a pretty great company based on inspiring people to follow a vision, right? So right. you can have one, and probably if you had to pick one, having the vision, uh, if you it's almost like that's a requirement. But if you want to build a truly iconic company, then you either need to have the the skills to have people follow you, or um, if you look at places like Steve Jobs and Apple, and I think that you know, or you have a team of other people to to some degree buffer people from you. 
right. so that they're the ones that are kind of, let's say, softening some of those rough edges. Um, so th there are different ways to skin a cat, but uh, ideally we can all learn um, from both of those two presidential right. examples. I, lo I love this. And I think now is a great time to transition into emotional intelligence. I think a lot of what we've been discovering up until now leads to emotional intelligence. So how can logical leaders learn emotional intelligence? Yeah, so I was one of those people who read uh, Daniel Goleman's book on emotional intelligence in the 1990s when it came out. And I was always, you know, I was fairly, I was, a, I was an engineer, a computer software engineer, fairly introverted. So I always knew that kind of being more emotional intelligent was something I needed to work on. And um, what I found is it really was only in the last five years that I truly developed uh, an understanding of how to develop emotional intelligence. There's a lot of stuff, if you Google, how do I develop emotional intelligence, there's just a lot of stuff that's just not really useful out there. Right. Um, and so one thing that I found um, was I found that, and this is especially true with English speakers, uh, I, I learned French and German when I lived in uh, building businesses in Europe. And it's interesting, if you look up the word uh, to feel, in English, in the thesaurus, uh, in an English thesaurus, there is the word to think is a, is a synonym of the word feel. But there is, if you work up the French word for to feel, sentir, uh, or the German word, uh, there is no, there isn't the German word to think as a synonym for the word to feel. So very practically is when I say, and I'm speaking about my feelings or my emotions, is the I say, I feel, and then the next word is a word. It's sad, mad, glad, happy, whatever. What we do often as leaders is I feel like. I feel like you stabbed me in the back, or I feel like you're not trying. I feel that you. So when you say, I feel that, I feel like, then what happens is you're adding a thought after that. And so, one, recognizing, recognizing when we speak as leaders I feel blank, and then that word is always an emotion word. And it can be useful um, to, in the beginning, to actually have, you can download, either from my, uh, you can s Google like a feelings chart or emotion chart. It can be useful to actually have uh, many analytical leaders, and there's a fair amount of research that many of the people who rise to the top of organizations tend to be more analytical um, than feeling type people. So we're kind of like, uh, we're prevalent, right? And so a lot of us, when we, someone says, what are you feeling? I found myself like, I would say, I don't know what I'm feeling. And I would say, I feel like, no, that's a thought. I feel that, no, that's a thought. And I would actually not be able to pinpoint what emotion I was actually feeling. So having a feelings chart, sometimes just looking at it and knowing which family of emotion am I, am I feeling mad? Am I feeling sad? Am I feeling fear? Am I feeling, you know, so knowing that and then looking down at the subtle differences, so mad, uh, are you frustrated, am I disappointed, am I and helping to start developing that emotional intelligence of what we're own feeling. Now, this all sounds really touchy-feely, but the reason why right. it's important is if, if I don't know what I'm feeling, then I won't be able to predict the emotion that my words or actions will elicit in others. So if I need to develop my own emotional sense of what I'm feeling in order to be emotionally, have empathy and resonate with others. 
the other part of emotional intelligence, you know, bringing it down to really brass tacks of how to develop it, is understanding that the emotion anger is not a primary emotion. So the emotion anger, and I'll come back to like a work context here in a minute, uh, but the emotion anger is just to be like an alarm bell. I'm a leader, somebody does some poor work or they're late on a project, I'm angry, that should be a signal to myself to say, okay, behind anger is always another emotion. Sadness, fear, uh, can be shame. Uh, so often what I find, especially in business creator, entrepreneur-led businesses, is that the emotion behind anger is most often fear. Like, here's the example. So uh, I have a large client, and maybe I've got a salesperson or someone does some poor work for that client, and and I'm like, I'm angry. Right? I can't believe you didn't do a better job for our number one client. But behind that anger is I'm afraid because if we lose our number one client, then I might lose this business or I might have to lay off people. I might not be able to afford my house payment as an entrepreneur. Now, if right. I want to connect with my employees, I can say I'm angry and I may be able to create fear in them. But that if I really want to connect with them, then I'm going to say, I'm afraid when we don't serve our number one customer, I don't know, you know, if we lose our number one customer, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. And if we want to really connect and get more out of our people, then we connect on the deeper emotions like fear, sadness, shame, uh, embarrassment. Uh, those wow. are the way we connect rather than connecting on anger. You, know, we, we, you can't connect on anger. Well, yeah, that's, that's very true because anger by its own definition and, and nature, repels. But I, I love what you've done here, and this is something that I've heard of before, but I've never really seen in action, is when you start from a place of anger, but then you translate it into or you transition it to fear. So, yeah, you're angry because your people really dropped the ball. Or another case could be, and we see this a lot in today's business environment, you're angry because uh, that employee of yours posted that really nasty thing on social media. So yeah. behind that is the fear with all this instant social justice we see in the world that somebody could screenshot that and run with it and there goes your business. Uh, you see examples yep. of I mean you see examples of we had the a case a few years ago where the uh, where there was that veterinarian in Texas who murdered a cat and then bragged about it on Instagram. Well it almost destroyed the veterinary practice she worked for. Even though they mm -hmm. fired her immediately, like instantaneously, as soon as they found out about this, they became yeah. a target because it was perceived as the easiest way to get back at her. And it took a few days for them to divert that anger that was coming toward their practice because questions were asked, how could you hire this person? How could you not know? What are your other veterinarians like? Do they go murder cats too for fun? Yeah. And to get that diverted into a different direction. And they lost a lot of patience. They lost a lot of credibility. They had to take their social media properties down, which cut into their ability to market. Now, I check mm -hmm. up on this story because it's, it's good for, for studying trends. That practice is still there. But they mm -hmm. took a lot of hits off that over something they didn't do. And in spite yeah. of the fact that they did the right thing as soon as they found out about it. So, yeah, if I'm, yeah. yeah, somebody's upset because somebody 
on in their organization went on social media and posted something that was just really, really bad, the fear is it can come back and splash on your company, and you can get hurt yeah. by it. So it's not a matter of you're yeah. trying to tell them what to say, what to believe. You're trying to censor them or anything like that. To the contrary, you're trying to protect your company and their role in it. Exactly. And I think that if you look at what, you know, all this comes back to the emotional intelligence, you know, it's touchy-feely, but if I can get 10% more output out of a $40,000 employee, that's $4,000, you know, if I can get 20% more. And so it's not just getting them to work more hours. It's uh, getting more productive work. If I go home, if I work late because my, I'm afraid of losing my job because I'm afraid my boss is going to fire me in the morning, the neuroscience is that the brain, the creative part of the brain shuts down when we're in a state of fear. If I say I as the leader am afraid and I pull you in and you want to work for me because you don't want to hurt me, then you're not, in a, you're not necessarily in a state of fear. You're in a state of, you know, I want to work hard for the boss because I don't want him to be afraid. Now, this assumes that the person that works for me actually likes me and does not enjoy the possibility that I'm afraid, which is a whole separate right. separate issue, right? Yeah. But if my people are connected to me, um, I will get more out of them by connecting on these other emotions other than anger. Right. So, So basically, what I would take from this is if you're feeling angry, look at the source of your anger. And in many cases, as you said, Anger comes from fear. You're angry because this thing that has happened or that has been done or allegedly uh, could impact things in other ways that could be very bad and you could lose control of and you could lose the, the company. You could lose the business. You could lose your reputation. And that engenders fear. So it's, you know, the anger is the immediate response. What's the foundational response is what I get out of it. Yeah, yeah. And I think the other the other thing that comes down to, and this gets to more emotionally intelligent communication, and also just generally, uh, another resource that I found I mentioned earlier about the what I learned from race riot negotiators. There's a book named um, Nonviolent Communication, uh, which okay. you, you think of the title, you can imagine why no one in the business world has been reading this book for the last 30 years because it sounds like. Uh, you know, like a, an abuse book or something like that. But it right. came out of a guy in the 1960s uh, did peace negotiations. So you imagine the 1960s, nonviolence, protest. You know, so this is where the title came. But the real title, if it right. was rewritten today, would be the language of empathy. So like I've given a couple examples here um, is what we find is developing emotional intelligence is one of the most effective things is what psychologists call and coaches call scripting, is giving people the specific stems of sentences. I call it like Mad Libs for emotional intelligence. Here's the, here's the words, fill in the blank with the emotion, fill in the blank with the action. So that's what I find in the CEOs that I coach and the teams that I coach is giving them specific words to say so they can kind of like training wheels start to develop those skills of greater uh, emotional intelligence and more delicate communication. And this book, uh, Nonviolent Communication, uh, is one of those gems that's been kind of um, buried for years. Interestingly, Satya Nadella, when he was named CEO of Microsoft, the first book that he asked his executive team to read was Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. So I guess Satya Nadella is a bit of a leadership archaeologist himself. Right. 
And that brings up another interesting point is I see this in discussion groups on social media all the time around entrepreneurs, and they say, what are the top five business books you like to read, or what are the type five authors you like to follow? And everybody gives all the same standard answers. We have to hear about Think and Grow Rich. Well, no shit, really? <laughs> and uh, and uh, oh, we're oh, we're supposed to study from Tony Robbins and Dan Kennedy? No way. Are you sure about that? I, now, what I now I now I follow all that stuff too, but I find that I get some of my best learning from autobiographies. And the reason I like autobiographies is. You get a sense of how autobiographies and biographies, let me be clear, autobiographies and biographies, mm -hmm. because through those two different types of medium, you get to see from a front row perspective how somebody in real world situations dealt with real world issues. So it's one yep. thing to have the foundation. It's another thing on how to act upon it. Sometimes the examples that you see, uh, the anecdotes, the stories are a model for you to follow, and sometimes they're a cautionary tale. All the same, you should consume them because they will give you a broader perspective, in my personal opinion. Also, I'm a big student of history, and through a lot of things we see in business, I look at those through the lens of studying historical events. I can also tell you that if somebody asks me what's the very first business book I ever read, it's a book uh, I read in the year 2000. I cannot remember the author of it right now, although from where I'm sitting in my studio, I can see it on my bookshelf, but my cord is not long enough for me to reach over and grab it. The title of the book is How to Succeed with Women. I was a 21-year-old guy. I was a 21-year-old guy, and I wanted to sharpen my skills. So that's the book I went and bought, How to Succeed with Women. And as I read that, I was thinking, oh, this is a business skill. Wow, this is the answer to that challenge I'm facing at work. Interesting. This yes. is a good marketing technique. And I've added that book to my rotation of books that I read every single year for the business lessons. So when you yep. look at things outside of just business, you can get so much more of a broad framework that makes you so much more powerful in your business interactions and heightens your emotional intelligence. Yep. And I actually, I just read, I, I share your philosophy. I just read a book called uh, Conversation Casanova, which is a dating book as well. And I, I yeah. agree that there's, a lot of uh, there are. I actually want to write a blog post about. Uh, I have uh, interviewed some pickup artists uh, because I want to yeah. apply the apply the some of the principles of that towards recruiting employees. I think there's that, that's kind of what a leadership archaeologist does is takes things, as I said, outside of the traditional business. In your case, you're talking about a dating book and say, hey, what, what, how could this be applied to business? And uh, that, that's kind of what I enjoy doing. Right, exactly. So, you know, we've spoken about uh, some of the challenges behind anger and fear and things not going exactly as they need to. So I've heard different theories on this. I've heard everything from forget about it, you've got to cut the cord, to uh, open your heart wide and let the sunshine in. So, Christopher, does forgiveness belong in business? So, yeah, so one of the things that people ask me frequently is, of all these adventures that I've done, what is the most impactful experience? And by far, the most impactful experience was the day that I spent with one of the world's experts uh, on forgiveness. So uh, I found myself sitting in a London uh, master bedroom of his, of his uh, apartment, beating a tennis racket into a pillow while he's yelling and screaming over my shoulder. 
uh, and about a month prior to that, uh, I was uh, I had been reading his book um, called Radical Forgiveness. The man's name is Colin Tipping, um, yeah. and I read the book and I said, "Wow, this is the f- I've read a number of books about forgiveness, but many of them are shrouded in religion. They tend to be very philosophical." But Colin Tipping's book was very unique in that it is a step-by-step process to follow for forgiveness. Uh, so, so impactful, in fact, that I had, was able to follow his worksheet, which you can actually download from his website. Uh, I was able to follow his worksheet and just go through these steps uh, in order to um, kind of let go of some of the you know, things that I had, people that I needed to forgive. And the challenge there is that usually anger and forgiveness are pretty closely related. If we don't forgive people and really release the anger, then what tends to happen is it seeps out in other relationships, not even in the person we're in relationship with. So, you know, Adam, I'm angry at you, but what do I do? I talk to other people about it, and it actually has a negative impact on my relationship with those other people because I become the guy who's just always talking about how he's so angry at Adam, right? Yeah. And this is this is essentially gossip and water cooler talk in a in a company, right? So what I see is that larger corporations, especially, spend all this money on conflict resolution and communication skills, but we're not getting to the root of how do you how do you just let go of conflict? And that fundamentally is forgiveness. So Colin Tipping's work is, as I said, is, is, it is somewhat new age, and it requires a, a bit more of a, a reading with a non-judgmental eye. But I can speak from personal experience that having gone through the work, it, and, and frankly, after the day I spent with him, I said, wow, that was, that was kind of out there. But the next day and the week after that, I found myself thinking less and less about this person that I was angry about. I found myself talking about it less to other people, and it just had less of a negative impact on my life. And so when I say forgiveness belongs in business is uh, think of the countless hours of people kind of whining and moaning about other people who have kind of hurt them or made them angry in the Uh workplace. If we could let go of that anger – um, then we would have those hours left for you know productive real work that you know creates revenues and profits. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know what I what I found is that we spend more time than we recognize processing things that happened before, and with all that processing, we haven't picked up the lessons from it. The reason things happen, whether they're good or whether they're bad, is so that we can gain from it. And it becomes part of our evolution in business and in life. And I see a lot of processing, but I don't always see a lot of lessons to be learned from it. Sometimes the lesson is fairly clear. Sometimes you need to think about it a little bit further. But once you have the lesson, just use it. And what I've also discovered when it comes to being angry with people and things like that is I can't control who you are just like you can't control who I am. What I can control will control and will defend to the death is how I react to it and what I allow into my space. Yep. I absolutely agree. And I think that getting control of our emotions is the, the process of forgiveness and letting things go is often the first step to getting control of what we're going to let, how we're going to react to things. Because if we haven't let go 
um, through some process of forgiveness, it's much more difficult to control our impulsive reactions to things. Yeah. Boy, we're having so much fun here. I sad that there's only 12 minutes left, but I'd like to see at least one or two more things in. So uh, this is one that you uh, ran by me, and I'd really like to cover this. So we've been talking about things like emotional intelligence, um, what happens when a company outgrows its leader and the leader fails to keep up, forgiveness. We've gotten into leadership styles. We've gotten into mission and vision. So with all that put together, how do leaders create 99.9% of employee engagement in your estimation? Yeah, so the the story behind that was, you know, as you said in the beginning, that we won five top workplaces uh, awards in a row, and it took us a while to get there. Um, right. So the 99%, the question that I've found most useful on any kind of employee engagement survey is asking employees, uh, would you like to be employed by this company 12 months from today? Right. So you can ask them all about, there's 50, usually these employee survey questions have, 50 questions on them, and after about three or four years into our kind of employee engagement effort, we actually had a moment where every single one of our responses except one was yes to that question. So that was like, this was right. an incredible accomplishment. And, um, and, and, and it wasn't that there were 10 responses. I mean, there were over, well over 100 responses, right? So and so what do we do? I, I'm a big believer that, you know, I, I had, was, had a unique opportunity to meet Richard Branson uh, on the streets of Hong Kong about 10 years wow. ago. He was kind of in a hurry, and I ran up to him. I had actually coincidentally just flown Virgin Atlantic for my first time uh, to Hong Kong, and I stopped him on the corner, and he was really kind of in a hurry. And I said, well, what's the one secret, you know, the one piece of business advice you'd share? And he said, and it's in his book, uh, but he said, you know, make sure your employees are happy. Don't, customers don't come first. Employees come first. Because if you have your employees are happy, they'll make sure your customers are happy. Now, applying that to employee engagement is actually employees don't come first. Your leaders come first. If your leaders are engaged, then it's their job to keep your employees engaged. So the steps of getting to uh, a highly engaged workforce Number one, the most important thing is make sure that we have better bosses. You know, the research shows that a manager accounts for 70% of the variance in an individual employee's engagement. So the, by far the biggest thing we can do is become better bosses, better leaders through these skills like emotional intelligence and delegating more you know, in a more emotionally intelligent way. Um, but then second, I think, is a good tool if, for larger companies is just surveying employees. You know, so you have to know where you stand. And uh, I heard a story once in the New York Times of a CEO who was giving an, a presentation on uh, employee satisfaction. And somebody came, a reporter from New York Times, I think, came up to him afterwards and said, so what's the secret uh, to having happy employees? And he said, we fire the unhappy ones. Well, the good news is you don't necessarily have to fire them. <laughs> you don't have to fire them, but the act of surveying on uh, surveying your employees actually causes people to go through that exercise of saying, "Do I want to be employed by this company 12 months from now?" And the ones yeah. that say no will likely start looking. Right. The other thing that well, I did as CEO. Yeah. So the other thing I did as CEO that I think is also useful is to give the happy employees permission 
you know, so I did a first time we did the employee survey, I, I kind of sensed that there was like five or 10% of our employees were kind of really unhappy, the bad apples that were spoiling the bunch. And, but most of our employees were fairly happy. And I said, I challenged the happy employees. It was an anonymous survey, so we didn't know who the unhappy ones, but I challenged the, unha the happy employees to say, I gave them permission to say, if you see an unhappy employee in the halls, it's okay to say, you know, if you're not happy here, why, why not look for a job somewhere else? Or yeah. if you're, you know, are you going to be part of the problem or are you going to be part of the solution? Yeah. So, and what we found is some of those unhappy employees did actually kind of turn a little bit and become, become more productive part of the solution. And some of them just left. But it was great. We involved our happy employees in coaching the unhappy ones out of the organization. Right. And, you know, and to me, when I said the problem takes care of itself, that's across the board. Because if somebody is in a place that's not working out for them, then they, they only have one life to live. As I have said many times, even if you believe in reincarnation, you only get to do this life once. And I've spoken with people who believe they're reincarnated or believe they will be reincarnated. Now say, tell me about your previous life. They don't really know for sure. They believe that through uh, past life regression exercises they've done through hypnotherapy that they've gotten clues, but they don't have the demonstrated proof that in a previous life they were this person or were this thing. So even if you believe in reincarnation, you only get to do this one worth, once, so you better make it worth it. Exactly. Well, some people are just going to, unfortunately, some people are just unhappy with their lives, and they're going to, you know, whatever company they work for, they're going to express uh, unhappiness, but it has nothing to do with necessarily the company. It's just they're unhappy people. Right. And you have some, you have some of those, too. Uh, and, again, if they think that they could be happier somewhere else, then it's incumbent upon them to pursue that. And it's incumbent upon you as a business owner to give them the help to get there. Yeah. Somebody, one of my mentors said a great, uh, a great quote that was always a great guidance for me is, our job as leaders is not to is not to stop people from leaving our good people from leaving our organization. It's to stop them from looking. Right. So the yeah. when we would have exit interviews, I would always say, well, tell me about the day you decided to create your resume. I didn't say about the offer or the company they were going to. And they said right. over and over again, it would come to a negative interaction with somebody in the office, typically their boss. So yep. we as bosses, those days that we say the wrong thing because we're angry or in a bad mood, those are the days that we cause great people to go out. And you know, now we don't even need to create resumes because LinkedIn is there. All I need to do is just accept the next yeah. recruiter email that comes into my inbox. So controlling yeah, me, our me, negative let, emotions yeah. is pretty critical. Yeah, let me let me let me let me tell let me tell you how uh, let me tell you uh, how uh, I made the jump because for two years I kind of did this oxen horse cart thing where I was building my business as a side hustle while I was holding down a part a full time job rather and uh, and I had uh, had some conversations with one of my clients about expanding my role with them to the point where the account would be big enough I could live off of it for a while and. Well, I kept going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But what catalyzed me is one afternoon, one Thursday afternoon, my supervisor snapped at me. So hmm. I went home. 
I contacted my client, and I said, I asked my client, uh, when I made that proposal last time, why didn't you accept it? And he just told me it was more than he could afford, and he had a different vision. So I said, well, what's your vision for how we could work together at a higher level on an intermediate to long-term basis? And he shared his vision to me. He shared his vision with me, and it was acceptable. I, I, I asked him for like $300 more a month on a six-month commitment basis, and it was fine. So we, did, we, we signed a contract that evening, and I gave notice the next day. <laughs> Yep. And and, 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 and and I love my previous supervisor. He's one of the few supervisors I ever had that I thought was even capable of tying their shoes in the morning. I thought of him as a great mentor. I still think to some of the things that he shared with me as a guide for how I move forward in business. But just because he was having a bad day and snapped off at me, that changed my entire trajectory. And that, I think, is, you know, that – kind of closing the loop on all the things that we talked about with forgiveness and emotional intelligence, you know, one of the most critical things we can do the, we can do and say the right things as leaders 99% of the time, but the other part, the 1%, we also need to control to make sure we don't say the wrong thing the 1% of the time. And that's where forgiveness right. and part of emotional intelligence is recognizing when we're in a bad mood and maybe saying, I'm going to close my door. I'm, cause if somebody comes in, I might snap at them. And yep. you can ruin and destroy a relationship with an employee or a supplier in one conversation. And one, and one comment or one word, which is why, and, uh, and people who are close to me know this, if I'm cutting myself off from people, sometimes that's because I'm recognizing that you know, I have enough emotional intelligence of my own, not that I'm perfect, but I have enough of my own to know when I reach that state where I could say or do something that could be a temporary, that could be a permanent damage to a temporary situation so i recognize it's best for me to just take a step back uh let me do that and everything will be fine don't press me that's great that's great yeah and i and i, and I think and i think if more people in my estimation recognize that part of being human is having human reactions and knowing that yes you too can end up being in a place where you might snap off at somebody and do something that you didn't mean and deal with that accordingly rather than judging yourself for it, that we could save a lot of relationships. We could get a lot further in the world. Yeah. We have a, we're probably running out of time. Do you want the, the five tips of how to give a good apology? We're actually out of time. So, uh, uh, so what I do want to do is I want to give you uh, 30 seconds. Tell our listeners I think you have something for them today. Yeah, so uh, well, I will make sure that a link to the blog post that I wrote about the five tips of apology. If people, listeners go to Christer dot com, Christer with a K dot com slash BCR, uh, I'll have right. uh, links to my the leadership assessment and the other things that I mentioned uh, on the podcast for them to for to download. Great, great. I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to checking out those five steps to an apology. So I'll be checking out your blog to check that out myself. So thank you for sharing that with us. Again, that's Christer.com forward slash BCR. Excellent. Thank you very much. It's been a great chat. Well, thank you, Christer Ungerbach. It's been an honor and an education. So for everybody listening, this is Adam Homey, host of the Business Creators Radio Show. Please check out our previous and our upcoming episodes at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from the intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.